Welcome to CrimeWire on the Inside Lens Network with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. If you have a question or comment for today's guests, please call in at 646-478-0982. My name is Denny Griffin, and my co-host is Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Hi, Delilah. Hi, Denny. It's good to be here with you again and uh, on the Inside Lens Network, which I'll just let listeners who aren't aware know that this network has been around for a long, long time. We have probably over 700 different episodes, you know, on a lot of different topics, and we have different shows like Crime Wire, we have the Transparency Project, Imagine Publicity on Air, Shattered Lives, so there are are a lot of topics to choose from whatever whatever floats your boat as far as listening to podcasts um but one one thing I just wanted to make note of here, Denny, because a lot of our our podcasts are crime related a lot of the cases that we present are unsolved and and open cases such as as the one that we're talking about today so uh, we want listeners to know that in no way do we take responsibility. We're just presenting information. And the other thing that I, I really got to thinking about past shows, and it seems like once once the people get to us, it's, it's a, a matter of victims and victim families trusting an agency or or a department or something within our society that we as citizens should be able to trust um and that trust factor failed in for whatever reasons it did and um i think today's show will will spark on that as well yes absolutely uh, good point delilah and getting to today's guest and today's discussion, on August 25th, 2014, Jennifer Doxakis called the 911 Emergency Dispatch Center in Paulding County, Georgia, to report that her then 40-year-old brother, Jason Brady, was having difficulty breathing. An ambulance was dispatched, but Jason died at the scene. As devastating as that was for Jennifer, when she learned of how the call was handled by the responding medical personnel, the nightmare deepened and raised this question, did Jason have to die? Jennifer joins us today to discuss her brother's death and the concern she has over how 911 call was handled by the first responders. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, I know that we're going to be talking about some some things today that may be difficult for you, but uh, um, I give you credit for, for what you're doing in regard to this case and uh, bringing it to the attention of the public and to the appropriate authorities. Uh, let's begin, if we would. I know that something just happened yesterday in regard to your, uh, to your brother's death. Could you tell us what that was? Yes, um, I've been working with the Georgia Ambulance Transparency Project and um, some other groups because there is an ongoing problem in Georgia, not just with quality patient care, but other things as well. And we're working on getting a bill passed, HB 264. Um Part of this bill is ambulance vendors will have a two-year term limit on council and will be banned from making hiring decisions on the council. They'll be required to register with the Ethics Commission to ban pay or play, yearly service reviews, and um, new statewide standards and practices Georgia will set. Today... There's going to be a hearing. Of course, I'm not going to be able to be there because I was there at the Capitol yesterday. Um, there's going to be a hearing with the Health and Human Services Committee, and hopefully this will get moved along before crossover day. This is going to improve our broken system. Our system is so so messed up right now. 
There have been so many people who have gotten substandard care. My brother wasn't the only one, and that's what really bothers me, is that nobody seems to really be addressing it. There's no no accountability at a state level. So um, it's a stepping stone to other changes if it passes. So we're hopeful we need this to pass for the citizens of Georgia. Um, We certainly wish you luck on on that. Uh, I'm involved with some similar efforts uh, regarding getting laws enacted in various states to to help the survivors or victims of uh, murder and suspicious deaths. So I know exactly what you're talking about, about accountability. And it's, uh, as Delilah said uh, a few minutes ago, we're, we're looking at agencies that the public rely on for help and uh, in some cases protection or to save their lives. And um, when when there are issues, when there are problems, uh, they definitely need to be addressed. And we, we have to, as a, as a community, do that. We, we have to bring these issues to the forefront and try to get them resolved. Uh, now let's begin talking about Jason. Could you tell us what kind of guy Jason was and what was going on in his life in August of 2014? He was um, was 39 years old. Um, He was basically a child in a man's body. He had had issues since he was a a child, Um, autism, learning disabilities. Um, He had a weight problem. Um, Previous to, um, he had come to live with me after our father died. Um, the ultimate goal was to, there was, um, there was abuse by our mother when we were growing up, and, um, my father was also abused, and, um, after our mother died, Jason went to go live with my father, and my father was so broken at that point. He had major depression. And so he couldn't really parent. So that was the kind of situation that Jason had gotten used to, you know, not really having rules of keeping stuff clean. Um, so when he came in my direction... I had a plan, I'm like, well, he never learned to be independent or anything like that, and so the ultimate goal was to, he had a job with Goodwill at the time, you know, help him become independent, you know, like get his own little studio apartment. I wasn't aware at the time that due to his medical condition, he could not live alone. So... That kind of went out the window, but I tried to teach him what I could. But, you know, when when someone is set in their ways, it's really hard to change that. And um, after all this happened, I felt like I was put on trial because of the state of his bedroom. You know, I had no control over that. It's really easy for someone to judge a situation that they know nothing about. You know, he loved my kids. He always had one of my kids in his arms. You know, and... You had... I'm I'm sorry, I was just going to say that you had uh, children of your own to to tend to as well. So you had your hands full pretty much. Yes, I did. Um, now, your brother had, had uh, because of his issues, uh, which, of which he had several, had uh, had dealt with the uh, EMTs and, and that type of thing before, right? That uh, yeah. this uh, August call was not his first experience with them. Yeah, it was not. And he prior. Had a rep- 
Okay, pr- prior to the uh, to the August 2014 call, um, what had your experience been with the ambulance services and, and how they handled uh, these calls? The first 911 call um, was with a. Uh, we had a different service provider back then. It was in December 2012, and. Um, my son came and told me that he had fallen down the stairs. I was unaware that he was at, that he had actually had a seizure and was postictal. He had hypoparathyroidism. If his he was dependent on medication, if his levels dropped, like if he forgot to take his medicine or he wasn't eating potassium rich or calcium rich food, he could his levels could drop too low. Um I had pulled all the records from all the other calls so I could compare everything together. Um, When Clark Ambulance showed up, my brother was somewhat aware. He was no longer post-dictal, and they didn't want to take him to the hospital. I'm like, "Uh, you're going to take him. Now, Fire Rescue put in their report that they noticed he was post-dictal, and I told them you're going to transport him and it's a good thing that I did he was in the hospital for a week the uh, time after that he had um, he had pulled um, his back muscle really bad to the point to where he could not move and um, went to uh, didn't have any issues with that call the third call, he had he had been battling gout for several months, and it was so bad that he couldn't walk. And he was six foot two, a uh, little under three hundred pounds. I didn't have any way to to get him out of the house, and I had called nine one one to take him to the hospital. Now, after I arrived at the hospital, um, I was talking to his nurse and she had mentioned that you know because I went into his background and she mentioned to me that um, he had a reputation and I'm like he's only been to the hospital out here three times how could he possibly have a reputation and um, she told me that during the the time previous on the back, when he had his uh, pulled back muscle, he had to ask a nurse to, he wanted her to hold the urinal so he could go to the bathroom. That was it. I was there. And it got made out to sound like he was some creepy pervert that wanted her to touch him. And that was really upsetting to me because he had the mind of a child, you know, and that comes back to, you know, judging a situation that you know nothing about. He asked for assistance because he couldn't move. He needed her. He didn't feel comfortable with me holding it. I was his sister, you know, so... um, she had mentioned to me that she had heard the um, the medics talking about adult protective services, and she gave me a heads up. So um, I was prepared for that. The uh, social worker called me, you know, and he came out, and I explained the situation to him because I, I had no idea at that point in time what had even been reported. He couldn't tell me, you know, due to... Um, confidentiality but he did say to me that what was reported to him was so far from the truth he just kind of laughed about it you know and it was just it was humiliating you know it was made to sound like it was a situation different than it actually was so that was how he earned this uh, so-called reputation uh, yeah with the and he was known now, for not – he wasn't good with personal hygiene. So 
regarding the, the call on uh, August 25th of 2014, when did you first become concerned about how that specific call was handled, and, and what what uh, what was the reason for your concern? <coughs> um, I was not aware at the time that... Um, I had no idea like after after he crashed it I still didn't realize that he would th- thinking back looking on it now I see it but I didn't see it then you know when he postured I my first thought was okay he had a seizure it started out as respiratory distress he was in severe respiratory distress and um so after he crashed, um, that's when everybody started moving. They're like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, we got to get him out of the house and into the ambulance," you know. And he um, he declined very rapidly. His heart stopped in the back of the ambulance. And um, after they had taken him out, I had I had come back inside the house because I needed to get my husband up to get my kids up and off to school. And I got dressed, and about 20 minutes later, I step out on the front porch, and they're still there. And I'm, I'm confused. I'm on the phone with my aunt. I'm like, why are they still here? And I walked around to the back of the ambulance, and that's when I saw them doing CPR. So the reality hit that, okay, his heart stopped. Um they finally leave, and I follow them to the hospital, and I'm the only thing I could think about was praying to God to please not take my brother. You know, and uh, they put me in the family waiting room across from him, and I could see movement that indicated they were still doing CPR. Um, I heard a little bit of chatter, you know, still praying, please, God, don't take my brother, please, God. And um, shortly after that, the doctor came in and said he was sorry. We did everything that we could. They were never able to resuscitate him at all. And um, I was interviewed by the deputy coroner, um, which... I wasn't aware at the time that the patient care report had false entries. Um, So the ER doctor and the deputy coroner is going by what they were being told. The medic did not leave the patient care report with a hospital. It should have been left with them or uploaded within an hour, but it was not uploaded until about two and a half hours later. And it didn't occur to me that anything was off at this point in time. Um, The deputy coroner had asked me about his seizures because in the records it showed that he did have seizures. Um, But he did not technically have a seizure disorder. He had a metabolic disorder. And um, it wasn't until... He, he he was called, his death was called at 6.30 in the morning, and my roommate was a witness that night. He stayed up there with me, and he, he witnessed the, the whole thing. My Aunt Alice came down about 5.30, 6.30 later in the afternoon, and she was comforting me and and we were talking. Um, my roommate came home from work later on that night, and uh, he had made a comment to my aunt. You know, he came in and he said, uh, did they bring him back? Is he is he still alive? And um, she said no, and he just he got very upset and told him that they killed him, told her that they killed him. And her being a nurse, you know, she's asking questions 
asking me questions, you know, I'm still trying to process, you know, my brother dying. And um, she asked me all these questions about what exactly happened. And I told her. And so that was, um, my roommate was the one who put out there that they had screwed up. Uh, now, I, I see uh, our switchboard. You're, we're getting quite a few calls lined up uh, from people apparently calling in with questions or comments. I'd like to take some of those calls shortly. But I would just want to ask you one more question before we do. Um, after you realized that there were issues with how that call was handled, what what did you do? Who did you contact or what uh, what actions did you start? Well, the the first thing that we did was we we started um, trying to obtain records. Um, we went down to um, Paulding Fire first. We had talked to the lieutenant, and we had because we did not have any issue with Paulding Fire. You know, Paulding Fire did come in and do an assessment. Um, we were told to go to. Um, the other station, and um, of course, at that point in time, they said that I had to prove I was next to Ken, you know, and, and so I got a redacted version of the fire rescue report, which I understood at the time. Same thing when 911 got a redacted version. Went to Metro and got the patient care report, no problem. And when we read the report, that's when we realized that the report was not an actual representation of what had happened. And no one at any time had tried to address that with us. They'll put out there, you know, that we didn't try to contact them. We did. And um, about a month later, um, I had gotten the death certificate and various other forms of documentation. And um, now all of a sudden they said that I, I couldn't have it, and the county attorney got involved. I ultimately had to go to probate to be able to get the 911 call that I placed from my home and to get the fire rescue report on my brother. And... Um, you know, it's just been a nightmare. Okay. We'll get back into uh, what you learned from your investigation in a minute, but are you up to uh, taking a couple of phone calls? Yes. Okay. Delilah, who we got? Uh, let's see. Area code 678. Hello, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, go ahead, please. Oh, I'm sorry, this is Jennifer. I thought you were talking to me. Okay, are you talking to 678-809771? Yes, go Hello? ahead. Okay. Um, I'm the one that, uh, I was a critical care nurse. <laughs> I'm retired. Um, I'm the one that kind of honed, honed in or tuned in to the fact that um, something wasn't right. Um, uh, Jennifer had called me after she talked to 911, and um, I tried to have Jason calm his breathing down by breathing with me, and I realized he could not. I promised Jason that the paramedics were on their way and they would help him. I was unaware that they did not help him. And when uh, when Jennifer's roommate came home later and said they killed him, then I started asking questions 
And then um, Jennifer was still in shock and um, found out that four, I mean, the two fire rescues, the paramedics stood in the room and did nothing to help Jason except to tell him to slow his breathing down and get in the stair chair. Um, They did not touch him. Fire rescue did vital signs. Um, The paramedics did not bring any equipment in. He was not placed on oxygen. He did not have an IV put in. He was not on a cardiac monitor. That is, those are protocols for respiratory distress for the state of Georgia. Um, so he didn't have any of that done. And I forget exactly how many minutes went by. Uh, Jen- I don't know if Jennifer can remember the minutes, but it was like close to 30 minutes went by. Yeah, it was, uh, it was about 25 minutes. Right. And even on their documentation, there was a lack of that many minutes where there was nothing written. Well, the patient care report got flagged. Right, it got flagged. And he was, was, they had documented um, false vital signs because they did not take vital signs. They had documented that he was alert and oriented. He was tachypnic. Um, He had diminished breath sounds in all four lung fields. Respiratory rate was 30. He was diaphoretic. And in capital, capital, they had uh, documented peril, P-E-R-I-L, which is like very serious. <laughs> they had documented EKG was normal. Uh, EKG was not done. It was never done. And they had documented um, non-rebreather was placed on him, which you cannot miss a, a non-rebreather mask because it you just can't miss it and um they had stated uh jason also was on a stretcher which he never was on a stretcher and when jennifer um when jennifer told me she finally had to scream at them to help him because he couldn't help himself he couldn't get up when they reached down to help him this is when jason reared back. Jennifer thought he was going to have a seizure, but he didn't. What he had, and I had her finally show me what he did, and it was decerebrate posturing, which is brain dead. It's brain death. So he actually died in the bedroom without a single person touching him other than the initial fire rescue taking vital signs. They just all stood there. And that was also documented by her um, roommate downstairs. Um, And then once they did, uh, I think James, um, who was her roommate, uh, had said to them, I don't think Jason's breathing. Is he breathing? Only then did um, Jason Woody, the paramedic, reach down to see if he was breathing. And he wasn't. And then he stood um, and whispered to somebody else, and they went down and got sheets. And actually, Jason was carried out in sheets. And James helped carry him out. And they carried him to the ambulance. I'm explaining this as, as simply as I can. To the stretcher. I don't think he was even in the ambulance, Jennifer, when they put him on the cardiac monitor and yeah. um, as soon as they put him on the monitor, basically he stopped breathing. And then a minute after that, he was asystole, which is no heartbeat whatsoever. And then they all were in the back of the ambulance. They had trouble. Um, Intimating, one point, too. One point that I, that I want to make here is had they handled it as a, an emergent call, a priority one, and got him in the stair chair initially, they would not have had the barriers, as they so call it, to getting him out of the house because once he once he went down, the stair chair was no longer an option. They had right. not established IV access. 
they had three failed attempts before they finally had to do an IO in his shin. No cardiac monitor, you know, um, the initial vitals that was done, they did his BP. His BP was 200 over 122. Um, his respiratory rate, according to fire rescue, was 32. It was 48 during the 911 call. Um, his pulse was 160. He had decreased skin perfusion. He was, uh, um, he was in diaphoretic peril. All those signs, anybody could have looked at him and seen he was in serious, serious, serious condition. Um, by the time that he had stopped breathing, they had trouble intubating him because his trachea was so far deviated to the left. So the first attempt failed. Now, tracheal deviation is a significant clinical finding. I was not aware of that. A seizure does not cause that. There are all, there's really only one thing that causes tracheal deviation, and that is it's either air or fluid. He could have had a pneumothorax um, because the, the diminished breath sounds means that there's either fluid or air that's in between the lung and the chest wall. It was either a pneumothorax that progressed into a tension pneumothorax or he had fluid in his lungs. Well, this is uh, certainly, I think anyone listening would, would understand it, uh, uh, Jennifer, that between what you and your aunt have said, uh, there were certainly valid concerns um, yes. about how this call was handled. Uh, Ma'am, thank you very much for that. And uh, if you uh, would, stay on the line with us while we take another call, and we may uh, uh, bring you back in for, for more comments, if that's okay. Yes, I'll be here. Okay, thank you. Delilah, who we got next? Well, it's me. That's <laughs> We're all here. Okay. Okay. Uh, so everybody's up to speed. Okay, what yes. uh, what I would like to do well, then is... Okay, I have go a ahead. question, Danny. I have a question for Jennifer in the fact that, you know, as you explained all of this in medical terms as well, and what could have happened, should have happened, and all of that, do you feel that this is, is a case of neglect or is it a case where the EMTs weren't trained properly or they just weren't following the protocol that they should have known? Well, the the paramedic um, received quoted uh, remediation, corrective action, because according to Metro, he did not follow protocol. He did not follow universal patient care. He did not follow um, scene management protocol. He didn't follow patient care report data protocol. But nobody would address the record being falsified. Um, I have audio from where we had a meeting with um, Lee Oliver, who is the um, um, vice president of Metro, and Dr. Julio Lorette, who is the medical director. And um, he stated three times, because we had asked, what did Jason Woody tell him? tell both of them when they interviewed him. And he stated that um, he should have documented it as a nasal cannula, you know, that he attempted to put oxygen on him. And after we let him finish talking, we told him that there was no oxygen on him. And they asked, so there was no tank in the house? And that prompted another investigation where they found uh, there's a, a sheet that that basically said he couldn't operate as a paramedic for X amount of time, that he had to be precepted by a field officer. He had to um, take a protocol test at the beginning and then take another protocol test at the end. Um, but I think it's safe to assume, you know, if it's documented 
you say you did it, and then it's found that you didn't do it, and you're cited for not bringing equipment into the house, that that is a false entry. And the EKG, when we finally got the EKG, the first one that was supposedly happened at 517 wasn't there. And we simply asked, well, where's the one from 517? And the records lady said, well, I can't magically make something uh, appear that doesn't exist. So on the EKG, it shows the first time they powered it on was at 541. And according to the law, that is, that's a violation of Georgia law. Something should have been done. There should have been some kind of action against his license. They didn't fire him. You know, and it just, it bothers me that that sort of behavior is okay. It sets a precedent that it's okay to check off that you did something that you did not do. You know, I have no doubt. in, in, In all of the investigation and everything that you've pulled together, um, have you found other instances where where this ambulance company or the EMTs had other similar circumstances happen? Patient care-wise, yes. So if your brother's incident was not just a fluke or not just no, something. it was not. It was not isolated. Um, okay. For the longest time, I did research. I couldn't find anything negative. I didn't find anything until the following year, and uh, that's when I reached out to um, uh, this lady, Diana Bollock. I reached out to her because she had a pulmonary embolism, and uh, she almost died. And so she has helped me through the past couple of years as well, you know, trying to get something to go somewhere, like, when you're in a situation like this and you can't get any attorney to even look at anything because of the simple fact you could not get an autopsy, you know, it just really complicates things. Um, I was told by someone um, that uh, I live in Paulding County. Now, Cobb County is where... Um, Metro's main offices. I was told that there was a backdoor process with uh, Cobb Fire that handled Metro complaints. None of these complaints made it to the state. And so I decided to do an open records request. And there were numerous complaints I I had put together a PDF of these complaints, the worst ones. Um, Some involved a death of a patient. Um, There were complaints, and these are complaints from Cobb County EMS employees, fire employees, you know, hey, they didn't bring equipment in on this call. You know, just common sense stuff. You know, but there's enough of of a complaint to see that there is a problem. It, so you've pretty clearly established a pattern. Uh, I think yes. we can call it a pattern of conduct yes. or misconduct, as the case may be. Uh, now, could you tell us, uh, you've mentioned a little bit about some of the documentation you've obtained. Uh, I, I know you've got a <coughs> large volume of stuff. Can you tell us uh Tell the listeners about some of the other documentation and evidence you gathered. Um, <clears throat> I got documentation from the uh, back when all this happened. I couldn't get anything when the previous coroner was in office. Um, and another thing that I should probably state is uh, the other deputy director, I didn't directly deal with her, but um she was the operations manager for Metro. So it's awfully convenient for Metro to have um, higher-level management stationed in the, in the coroner's office. 
Um, so once our once we had a new coroner elected, I reached out to her and was trying to get a file on him, and um, she never could locate any kind of records on him, but there were a lot of missing records from the previous coroner. So I did a request with the GBI to find out if his death had been reported to the ME's office, and it was. And um, it was upsetting to see um, what she had written out in her report, you know, is uh, some of the uh, information was off. You know, little things, but um, because of that, there was no autopsy warranted. But at the bottom of one of the pages, um, well, the ME didn't even sign the consult. That was also written out um, on the form, consultation not signed, in all caps. Um, (sighs) I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. It's okay. Um, let me just ask you. Let me ask you a question, Jennifer. While I'm thinking of it, or while you're uh, thinking, and uh, in, in some of the uh, other cases that we get involved in or profile uh, here on the show, the um, one of the options that some of the families take. Now, these are homicide and suspicious death cases, but one of the options that some of the families take, depending on where they live in their area of jurisdiction. Uh, when when the authorities don't seem to be doing a, a sufficient investigation, is they file a wrongful death claim or civil action. Uh, unfortunately, in most states, that statute of limitations to do so is two years. But I was just wondering, is that anything that uh, that you thought about or considered uh, as maybe yeah, a way to uh, I to tried, get this, um, this before somebody other than the board? I. I tried. Um, we were only successful with getting a meeting with one attorney, and then they canceled at the last second, saying, you know, that they they couldn't give no explanation as to why. Um, it complicated things because I was unable to get an autopsy. Um, the information when I contacted the coroner's office, and I talked to the coroner, I told him that that they screwed up. And that information should have been reported to the ME's office because that could have changed the decision as to whether an autopsy would be warranted. I never did get a clear answer to that question, you know, how they handle things like that in that kind of situation. You know, but... These attorneys basically said nobody, you know. But there's enough of, there are other things to dispute the fact that on the death certificate it says he died from complications of a seizure disorder. He didn't have a seizure disorder. He had a metabolic disorder. And um, the event started out as respiratory distress. You know, so that death certificate is disputable. He had tracheal deviation. That's respiratory <laughs> in origin, you know. But we we couldn't get anywhere. We we tried. I ultimately filed a complaint with the uh, Department of Public Health Office of EMS. And um, I dealt with E.J. Daly with Region 3 because I contacted Cobb County being since that's where their main office was. And um, she called me and told me that my complaint had merit. And it got passed on to Ernie Doss, who was the deputy director of Office of EMS. So here I am thinking that, okay, something's going to get done. You know, they're doing their investigation. Um, I was sending in information as I was getting it. I had asked him if he needed the EKG, the full EKG. He said he didn't need it. I asked him, did he want the meeting we have with Metro? He said he didn't need it. And um, I got the letter stating that um, Metro did find 
that um, this medic did not follow protocol and that they took corrective action and that the state did not find that he violated any Georgia code or Department of Public Health uh, regulations. And I'm confused. I'm like, what happened? I tried to call to find out. Whoever answered the phone told me, you know, I kind of went into uh, how I needed to talk to him, you know, about how he came to this decision. And um, I was straight up told by the secretary or whoever it was that I basically wasn't privy to that information. And so I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I, I couldn't understand. I didn't realize that I could do an open records request. I found that out, and um, after I did the open records request, I got all the emails and finally put together um, everything from beginning to end. Now, originally, the first letter that was originally drafted said that this this medic followed protocol without error. Now, that was before he had even determined determine whether standard of care had even been met or not. And throughout the emails, you can see how I would email him and he'll say, um, because he had looked at, they had sent a letter to Lee Oliver, you know, asking him about whether standard of care had been met. And that letter was very dodgy. He didn't specifically say, you just kind of skirted around it, you know, well, we um, um, had the communication been better, you know, had his documentation been better, you know, it wouldn't have opened him up to questions of care. And after I had emailed Ernie Doss, he sent an email to EJ Daly saying that, um, that that letter did not say whether standard of care had been met. So she had to send a letter back to Metro, and Dr. Lorette sent a letter back saying, okay, he didn't follow protocol. Um, He has to do, I think it was 144 hours of um, being perceptive by a field officer, um, and that was that. They never asked for any documentation from Metro. And um, I was upset because I felt like I had discovered that there were conflicts. You know, there was a rapport between Metro and Office EMS. I was so upset that I went straight up to the top. I contacted Brenda Fitzgerald, and I demanded that the case be reopened. Now, through emails that I got after the fact, because I did several open records requests, she had made a comment to um, Dr. Pat O'Neill that uh, we need to investigate. I fear that she will start reaching out to others. And um, my investigation got reopened. You know, it probably, um, it seemingly upset Ernie Doss. Um, I sent a huge packet with everything. Because the first time around, I had trouble getting documentation. Second time around, I had everything. And I had created an attention letter with a paragraph on each person with an explanation as to, you know, what their failure was in the investigation of my brother. And um, the only person that I could directly talk to was Sidney Barrett. He was the general counsel for Department of Public Health. And um, he said that our conversations had to be limited as to avoid the appearance of impropriety. And um, 
I was a little upset at the fact that there wasn't anybody else who could look at it because I felt like it had been botched the first time around, you know. And um, there were emails of Sid Barrett advising Ernie Doss to please look at the file because only then did Ernie Doss ask Metro for all the investigative files regarding the incident of what happened to my brother. And in those emails, it says, or uh, it was uh, Zane Farroquay, he was the, uh, he was one of the other um, persons involved. He stated that Ernie had already made his decision. He had already made his decision prior to even looking at the Metro investigative records. And um, second letter I get, you know, it kind of comes across as uh, condescending. You know, um, they literally broke it down. I think it was like 10 pages long. You know, we don't know if, you know, no equipment being brought into the house jeopardized the health and safety of Jason Brady. Uh we don't know that, you know, this, that, and the other jeopardize the safety of Jason Brady. And they reaffirmed their stance that there was no rules broken. And I sent Sid Barrett the audio where Dr. Lorette stated three times that when Jason Woody was interviewed, that he was trying to put oxygen on him. And he documented he put oxygen on him. But then he was cited for not bringing any equipment into the house. You know, and it's just, when you, Um, I'm sorry. Jennifer, based on all the evidence you have gathered, um, and, and what's—I I know we talked about your uh, your testimony yesterday, um, and what you're trying to get done there. What would be the best possible outcome, as far as you're concerned, uh, to all of this? What What would you like to see happen? Um, in addition to any legislation, is there anything else you want to see take place? I think that there should be accountability for what happened to my brother. There Well, that that is agree. I was just uh, curious too now uh is there some way for any interested listeners or parties to be able to see or hear the evidence you gathered is that posted anywhere like on a website or a social media page or anything? Yes, um I have a um I have several places. Um, I have uh, the 911 call and snippets of uh, the Metro conversation on my blog. And my blog is www.justiceforjasonb.blogspot.com. I have a closed group on Facebook. it's called Georgia Paramedic EMS, or um, I'm sorry, uh, Georgia Paramedic EMS Reform. Um, I have another page that I had unpublished because I'm working on, and it's a page dedicated to um, what happened to Jason. I already have some records on there, but I have to finish it. And that's going to be a place where anyone could see the documentation. I just have to finish so, it. Uh, okay. I just have to finish and, the page. Uh, all right. Um, so there are various uh, venues currently, as you just mentioned, and then and then something else uh, will be forthcoming when you when you finish that page so people will be able to access and learn more about this whole case and and about what you're doing um 
I was wondering, uh, Delilah, do you think we can bring uh, Jennifer's aunt back on? We're running out of time here. I'd like to uh, get some uh, closing comments from her. Absolutely. Go ahead. I'm here. This is Alice. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, Alice. Uh, what are, What are your uh, thoughts on this? Uh, do you uh, Do you think there's, uh, with your knowledge of the of the medical uh, field, uh, especially in Georgia, do you foresee uh, some of the things Jennifer is trying to do that uh, could could be successful? I certainly hope so. I'm telling you. <laughs> We've we had a rough time. We have had a rough time of this, and she has she has gone much further. She has educated herself. She has she's just been amazing. Just done an amazing job with. Um, she's also been in touch with a um, news reporter, investigative news reporter, who's um, eventually going to be airing stories about. Um, I think Jason and ambulance services and lack of care. Um, and the persons, um, I was listen, listening about her telling about um, um, Diana, the one that threw a pulmonary embolism, and I wanted to add that when we were in the meeting with Metro Ambulance with uh, Lee Oliver, who was the vice president, and Dr. Lorette, um, the first thing that was told to us when we walked in the meeting was Jason Woody was vigorously counseled about his documentation. That was the first thing they said, <laughs> which I thought was kind of unusual, you know. And they tried, uh, Dr. Lorette especially tried to convince us that um, – our Jason Brady had a pulmonary embolism and I had to keep redirecting him and he said he would have died anyway. And I said, that's not the point. And there are people who lived with pulmonary embolisms. And I brought up different cases where I had documented that. But, and I had to keep bringing him around. I said, it's not the fact that he died which it is part of the fact, but it's a fact that they did nothing to help him. He didn't have a chance. And um, so we did We did tape that whole meeting. But they already knew. They already knew. And then um, the fact that the state did not handle the case, which they were required to do, they put it back with Lee Oliver and Dr. Lorette to take care of. They let the service handle it. That's part of the yeah, problem. Yeah, they let right. And the state should have taken it. They should have taken it and handled it from the state level and done corrective action, which they did not do. So it's kind of you know it. Um, it looks like a cover up. You know. Okay, we're going to protect Dr. Lorette and Lee Oliver and Metro Ambulance, you know, because Dr. Lorette's going to, you know, retrain this guy. And the 144 hours was retraining, not just not just um, where he couldn't um, be in the ambulance alone. It was retraining. He had to go through retraining of how to, you know, what different, like, the difference between what a cardiac monitor shows, uh, uh, a difference between a a seizure and a serapid posturing, retraining, 144 hours. That's a lot of hours of retraining for somebody who did nothing wrong. By the way, (laughs) I need to to put out there real quick, um, this paramedic um, was only part-time with Metro. He was a sergeant with Paulding Fire for 13 years. That, I, I believe that was why they gave me problems getting the record. So it's not like he was a new paramedic. He, he, was, he experienced. was supposed to be seasoned. Yes. Okay. Ladies, unfortunately our time is up. In fact, we're a little bit over. Um, 
uh, Jennifer and Alice, thank you so much for sharing this very disturbing story with us. It uh, is something that needed to be heard. And Thanks. please let us know if there are any developments, uh, new developments or updates, and we'll have you back on to uh, okay. to update the uh, the listeners. Uh, right. Thank you so much, ladies. And thanks also to. to our listeners. And until next time, stay safe. Thank you.